The kingdom of God has always had enemies. That's pretty much how the gospel that we're in at the moment in this series starts. The opening chapter of this gospel, Zechariah, do you remember the old man, John the Baptist's father? And Zechariah's celebrating the coming birth of John and the coming birth of Jesus. And he begins to celebrate that we should be saved from the hands of our enemies and all who hate us. That's how the gospel begins, with this announcement that the birth of Jesus and all he represents is going to rescue Israel from the hands of their enemies. It's like the kingdom has always been opposed, even before it's begun. And that theme runs throughout the gospel, and it's run throughout the series we've been in. So some people, as we saw in chapter 3, don't want to repent, and they oppose the kingdom for that reason. Some people, we saw in chapter 4, don't like the manifesto of the kingdom. They don't like Jesus. They think Jesus has jumped up to claim that he's bringing this great new kingdom, and so they oppose him, as we saw in chapter 4. Some people we saw in chapter 5 resent the people that Jesus welcomes. They said, what are you doing eating with them and welcoming them in? We saw in chapter 6 that some people don't like the kingdom. They oppose the kingdom because it turns the world upside down, and it means that the powerful get thrown down and and the humble and poor get lifted up. Some people in chapter 7, we saw think the kingdom is a bad thing because it's not moral enough. It's too lax. It's too loose. And then in chapter 9, we saw that other people oppose the kingdom for the opposite reason. They think it's too demanding. And so wherever we go in this gospel, we find people opposing the kingdom of God. Some people seem to want Jesus, the king, but they don't want his kingdom. So they say to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, okay. But you mustn't turn your hand back to the plough and you mustn't go and bury your father and you must sell everything and then follow me. And they go, oh, no, 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 we don't want that. They want the king, but they don't want his kingdom. They're worried about what it might demand from them. Others want the kingdom of God, but they don't want the king. They want to be able to, all the benefits of the kingdom life, but they don't want Jesus at the heart of it. And that, I think, is basically what we have in Britain today. We have this... Theologian Mark Sayers says, we have a nation that wants, or a people in the West, that want the kingdom, but not the king. They say, no, we like the idea of a community where the first are last and the last are first. We want freedom for the captives. We want justice for the oppressed. We want recovery of sight for the blind. We want good news for the poor. But we don't want the king. So what we end up with is this sort of desire for a squishy sort of Christianity without Christ. And so what we do is we try and build the kingdom without him. Government will bring good news to the poor. Education will make the first last and the last first. Police will bring justice. The NHS will bring recovery of sight to the blind. In other words, let's have the kingdom because it's good, but not the king. We don't want the king of kings, Jesus, the risen Lord, to start challenging our gods, money, sex, power, self, whatever it is. We certainly don't want sacrifice and submission and worship. And we don't want to take up our crosses and follow him on the Calvary Road. So we try and build the kingdom without the king. The kingdom of God has always had enemies for a whole raft of different reasons. And in the passage we're going to read now, Luke chapter 11, we encounter three of them. And we discover who they are, how they fight, and how Jesus wins. So what the enemies of God are, how they fight, and mostly and gloriously, how Jesus wins. Let's read Luke chapter 11, and we're going to begin reading at verse 14 and to verse 36. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. 
When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb who bore you, and the breasts of which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Well, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye's healthy, your whole body's full of light. But when it's bad, your body's full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is the word of God. Historically, the church has often referred to the enemies of the kingdom as the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's a very common way of packaging together who the enemies of God are in Christian history. And in many ways goes back to the temptation of Christ, doesn't it? That Jesus is tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's offered the power of, power of all the kingdoms of the world. He's tempted in his flesh by turning these stones into bread. And he's tempted by the devil to worship Satan. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil is a common way of saying, these are really the main enemies of the kingdom of God. And all three of them feature in the passage that we've just read. The first story is all about Satan, as you noticed. The second is all about the world. This generation is an evil generation, and these people are going to condemn this generation, this world. And then the final two little stories are more about the flesh, as we'll see in a moment. 
What I find interesting about each of these stories about the enemies of the kingdom, though, is how the enemies of the kingdom actually work, how they oppose God's kingdom. And they do it in very different ways. When you track through these stories, you think, okay, yeah, so the world and the flesh and the devil have very different tactics, in a sense, to try and oppose the kingdom. Satan opposes the kingdom through accusation. It's not the only thing he does, but in this story, and prominently, that's what he does. Satan opposes the kingdom through accusation. Verse 15, people say of him, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, which is another word for the devil, really. The prince of demons. And the word Satan, that's an accusation, right? And that's because the word Satan means, hasatan in Hebrew is the accuser. It's like the prosecutor. That's what that word would mean. And this story reveals one of the key methods that the devil uses. If you do badly, you get the blame. If you do well, someone else gets the credit. And that's often how the devil functions, how he functions in your life too. You've done something badly, I'm going to make you never forget it. You've done something well, I'm going to plant in you this deep suspicion that ultimately it isn't really anything to do with anything you've done, and it's certainly not to do with what God's done. Someone else, somewhere else has got the credit for it, and ultimately the devil takes credit for it, which is what happens here. So Satan opposes the kingdom through accusation. The world doesn't do that in the same way. The world opposes the kingdom, in this story at least, and often in our time, I think, through skepticism or doubt. Right? Verse 16, others, to test him, kept seeking a sign from him from heaven. Verse 29, this generation seeks for a sign, but they're not going to get a sign except the sign of Jonah. That the world, if they're like, no matter how many miracles they've seen in this generation, Jesus' own day, and no one's seen God in flesh calming storms and feeding thousands like this generation has, but this generation continues to say, come on, give us a sign. It's like nothing's ever enough. So far in this gospel, Jesus has healed lepers, calmed storms, cast out demons, fed thousands, raised the dead, but it's never enough to satisfy this generation. They want more signs, they want more tricks, more stunts. They say, come on, do us another, do us another. That's like nothing they, and by the way, the same happens back in the days of Israel, doesn't it, in the wilderness. You know, they've been delivered through the Red Sea, they've had manna from heaven, quell water from the rock, and they say, is the Lord among us or not? What are you talking about? But that's one of the things the world does. It just this non-stop, voracious, unsatisfiable skepticism that no matter how much evidence you've seen, you're always going to say, yeah, it's not good enough. And so the, Satan opposes the kingdom through accusation. The world does it through skepticism, at least in this passage, and the flesh opposes the kingdom with what I'd, I think Jesus would call darkness. Have a look at... Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, whole body's full of light. But when it's bad, your body's full of darkness. Right? Your eye is the lamp of your body. And in a way, the way that the flesh gets, opposes the kingdom of God is by taking hold of doing whatever it can in your life and in mine to say, let's make this life as dark as we can. Let's turn off all the lights. Let's make sure that the only things that come in through the eye are things of darkness and degradation and depravity, and we're not going to allow light. That's what, the, that's what the flesh is always trying to do in me, right? My flesh is trying to get me to go, let's just put lots of darkness in here, right? So the flesh is going, let's use my eyes to look at things that are going to fuel selfishness and greed in my heart. That's what my flesh does. 
Let's, let's see wherever I can. The flesh will try and lead you into doom scrolling and greed surfing online and pornography and anything that gets your life to be darker, your flesh will go, that's it. That's how we're going to oppose the kingdom. We're not going to allow the kingdom to take a foothold in this life by making sure that the eyes, the things that you literally look at in a day, the things that you have on your phone, on your screen, on your television, the things you put in your headphones, all of those things, we're going to try and make the things you imbibe through your senses and particularly your eyes as dark as possible. I saw this, I don't know if you've seen this, it's quite, kind of a funny way, but it's got a hard edge to it, I think, of making this point. The seven deadly sins related to social media, right? I, by the way, I use social media myself, many of you know that, and, and you use it yourself, and it's not sinful in itself. But I thought this was quite insightful, that lust is basically uses Tinder, and gluttony uses Yelp, or you could say, you know, Deliveroo, or whatever it might be. Greed uses LinkedIn, sloth uses Netflix, wrath uses Twitter, envy uses Facebook, and pride uses Instagram. And I thought that was actually quite, quite pointed in a way. It's not to say that you are controlled by any of those things, necessarily if you use those apps or whatever, but I did think it was, there was a good point in there, isn't there, that the flesh loves to fill the life with darkness. And the best response to that, Jesus says, verse 36, is simply to use your eyes to fill your body with light. So verse 36 says, if your whole body's full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So it's, the eyes are not, they're not only, a bad, not only a bad thing, right? The eyes can do wonderful good for your spiritual life, and they can be used to stand in the kingdom and to fight the power of the flesh. And what you do is you say, instead of using my eyes to look at things that make my life darker, I'm going to deliberately use my eyes to look at things that will fill my life with light. And so it's good to ask yourself this question. What can I look at, literally with my eyes, this week, that will fill my life with light? A few weeks back in the previous series, I referred to the Wisdom Pyramid uh, from my friend Brett McCracken. I think it's a really helpful tool. I'm just going to put it back briefly on the screen so you can see it. And I just, this, this is a good tool, just thinking, what are the things I can look at that will fill my life with lights? Foundationally, looking at the scriptures, right? The Bible will fill your life. Just literally looking at the pages and reading the words, looking at the church as we gather increasingly, looking at nature, looking at books, looking at beauty, and then there's a little bit of space left for the internet and social media. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's a lot of things you can use your eyes for positively. It's not just, oh, just must avoid the darkness. It's like, no, actively pursue the light. But that's how the flesh tries to, tries to get you through, effectively through darkness. So you've got Satan's got one tactic, the world's got another, the flesh has got another, and the three of them are in cahoots to try and oppose the kingdom in this world and in your life. So the kingdom of God has enemies. And it's important that we know that so that we're prepared and so that we know what to expect. A friend of mine, Simon Holly, uses the image. He does it a lot in his church. He says, you need to know whether you were born onto a battleship or onto a cruise ship, he says. He says this a lot. He says, you see, if you're born on a, if you, you're born on a battleship, you, you wake up and bombs start dropping and things start, the ship starts going all over the place and guns start firing, you think, okay, well, yeah, this is normal around here because I'm at war. So this is all I've ever known. If you're born on a cruise ship, 
And everything's meant to be genteel and ditches and swimming and lavish buffets and lunches and strolling around doing nothing really. And then the boat starts shaking and things getting fired on and water spraying everywhere and people shouting and screaming. You're going to think, what on earth is going on here? This cruise ship is a complete fiasco because you're not prepared for the fact that you're going to be at war. And the point, of course, is that the Christian life is war. The Christian life, the kingdom of God has enemies reflected in these stories we've just read. And it's throughout scripture you'll find this. There is a war on. You're not at peace in that sense. The world is not, it will be, but it isn't yet. The world, the flesh and the devil are waging war against your soul and against the kingdom of God and his Christ. And as a result, we are on a battleship for our entire lives. And not a cruise ship. It's not plain sailing. And I'm sure this last year and a half has taught many of us that if we didn't know it before. 1 Peter 4 verse 12, one of many texts like this. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you as if something weird was happening. It's basically what Peter says. Don't act surprised. This has always been what was going to happen in the kingdom of God. So it's important that we know that those enemies are out there. And it's also important that we respond wisely, as we've already seen in the way we use our eyes, verse 36, and in the way we use our ears, Verse 28, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Right? So you need to be people who, who literally take what is coming into our eyes and what's coming into our ears and think, I want to be wise about what I'm allowing in through these filters that God has given me. What I have in my headphones if I use them. What I, who I give attention to. Where I focus my hearing. I want to make sure that I'm hearing the word of God and keeping it. But ultimately, this passage is not really about how we overcome the enemies of the kingdom. There are things we need to do. I've just mentioned several of them. But it's not really about what we do to overcome the enemies of the kingdom. Really, it's about what Jesus does to overcome the enemies of the kingdom. And he overcomes the enemies of the kingdom by being a stronger man and by providing a greater sign. Those are the two focal points of this text, that Jesus is the stronger man and Jesus provides a greater sign. I'll show you what I mean. A stronger man. Verse 20 to 22. But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and devises spoil. I love that image. Satan is pictured as a strong man. It's like a big guy, he's got his house, he's got his guns, he's got his weapons, he's, everything's, right, here's all my stuff, and I'm in charge, and I'm going to protect it, come what may. Until Jesus, a stronger man, walks in, attacks him, defeats him, overthrows him, strips all of his armour, and takes control of all of his stuff. That's the image here, isn't it? Satan, strong man, until overpowered by a much bigger guy. Have you ever seen that where, that, where that happens either in the movies or maybe even in real life? Someone who thinks they're the business and is just, I'm in charge around here, and then someone much bigger turns up and they're like, oh, no longer. That's Jesus, the stronger man. And notice in that image, who is attacking whom? And many Christians are inclined to see ourselves as on the defensive in spiritual warfare. That's what, how Christians, in my experience as a pastor, generally think about spiritual warfare. I tend to think that way if I'm not careful, that I am, the devil is the attacker and I'm the defender and I'm trying to back off and make sure duck and weave and put up a few web, uh, defensive uh, fortifications, but ultimately he's attacking and I'm defending. 
And we're holding out for as long as we can. You know, like in the Lord of the Rings, they're in Helm's Deep. They're like, I'm just going to try and hold this wall. The waves and waves of enemies are coming. And I'm just going to hang in there until maybe day three, and then I'll collapse in a heap. But that's not the picture in this story, in this image, is it? In this image, Satan is the one who's in the fortress trying to defend his stuff, and Jesus is the attacker who's come to strip him of all of his armor and remove all of his possessions. Jesus is overpowering the power of accusation with the power of grace and truth in, distinct, in distinction to lies. That's the way the image worked, and that's the way images of, in Scripture always work relating to spiritual warfare. So in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As in, I'm building a people who are going to advance against the kingdom of Hades and death, and the kingdom of Hades and death is not going to be able to hold out. Satan's on the defensive, and the kingdom is on the attack. It's the same in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The we- Paul says, the weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds, right? Fortresses. People, the enemy, in powers of darkness, behind the walls. And it's like, no, our weapons are big enough to punch through those defences. It's the same in Colossians chapter 2. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. Right? Over and over again, you find that spiritual warfare is on the offensive. So one of my favourite quotes from... TV show Red Dwarf I used to watch as a kid where the cat just makes this wonderful comment where he says, wait a minute, about a battle they're in. He says, wait a minute, I've played this game before. It's called Cat and Mouse. There's only one way to win. Don't be the mouse. And they made it kind of a life motto. Like The only way you can win in this game is not to be the person who's continually saying, I've got to hide, I've got to retreat. It's like, no, I've been given divine power to destroy strongholds. And in this case, Jesus is the stronger man who's come to dethrone the enemy in my life. Satan has gates, armor, a stronghold in this world. But in the Lord Jesus, one stronger has come, and he comes to conquer, to disarm the devil, to condemn condemnation, and to take captivity captive to the glory of God. So Jesus overcomes the devil by being a stronger man. And he overcomes the world, especially the skepticism of this evil generation, by providing a greater sign. So he's a stronger man, and he has a greater sign. Verses 29 to 32. This generation seeks for a sign, he says. No sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, the son of man will be to this generation. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba in the Old Testament, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, someone greater than Solomon's here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, what does Jesus mean? In what sense can you say that the sign of Jonah is the only sign Jesus is going to give this generation? Right? These are two examples, aren't they, of Gentile peoples, one from the far north, the men of Nineveh, one from the far south, Queen of Sheba, Gentiles, like us, coming to the kingdom of God, to Solomon and Jonah, respectively, and saying, yes, I'm going to follow the true God. Right? That's what these are stories about. But Jesus says, the only sign I'm going to give the people in Israel today, in the first century, the only sign I'm going to give is the sign of Jonah. In what sense is what Jesus is going to do, can that possibly be described as the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah, you remember, was thrown into the deep 
where he remained for three days before emerging alive and then going straight to the most wicked city on earth and telling them to repent, which they did. And Jesus himself is going to, in order to, 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 to cause the waves of God's judgment to subside over the nation, Jesus will himself be thrown into the pit of death. No longer the ocean, but the pit, the grave. He will stay there for three days, and he will then emerge victorious and alive and go straight to the most wicked cities on earth and command them to repent, which they do. The sign of Jonah is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the only sign this evil generation needs, and it's the only sign that they're going to be given. And that, by the way, is still true today, no matter what the source of your scepticism. So if you have all kinds of doubts about Christianity, and many do, just look at it this way for a moment. Think about it. If Jesus is still dead, then no amount of arguments and miracles and moral excellence can rescue Christianity from the fact that it's all nonsense. Right? Paul said that, that as much himself. Paul said, Christ isn't raised, our preaching is useless. So is your faith. Right? Without the resurrection, the whole thing collapses. Without the sign of Jonah, you might say, there is no point to anything else. But if Jesus is alive, if Jesus is crucified and risen, then no amount of arguments or doubts or skepticism or fashionable opinion or moral failures in the church can rescue skepticism. Because ultimately, if Jesus is still alive, there might be all kinds of objections we might have to the church or Christianity or the kingdom, but the king is alive and he has a kingdom and nothing that we can do on earth will change that. You might object to Christianity for all sorts of reasons. Science, sex, slavery, suffering, I don't know, all kinds of things that you might object to. But if Jesus was crucified and then came out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, then none of those objections can roll the stone back. If Jesus is alive, the whole world is a different place and we have to think things through completely differently in light of that, in light of the glorious risen Son of God. So we don't need any other signs beyond the sign of Jonah. We put all our chips on Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. That the sign of Jonah has been given to us and we don't need any other and we're not going to get one. So yes, the kingdom of God has many enemies. But the strong man has come and defeated the devil. The greater sign has appeared to expose the skepticism of the world. Something, in fact someone, greater than Jonah and greater than Solomon is here. And we're invited to follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the glorious son of God, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his victory over the devil. Thank you for his victory over death and hell. Thank you for your spirit sent into our lives to help us fight sin through our eyes, through our ears, through our obedience, through hearing the word of God and doing it through the many different ways we've talked about. Thank you for the gifts you've given us to prevail in this battle. And thank you that ultimately the enemies of the kingdom are not defeated by little old me or even by great king's church. They are defeated by the risen son of God who reigns forever and is coming again in glory. We thank you so much for him. Amen.